Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Three, two, one, blast off. Okay. Good morning, everybody. My name is Melissa, and I am a grateful member of this fellowship. Um, I'm really honored to be here today, and I'll share a little bit about my story, but also talk about, um, I wanted to start by talking about Tradition 8. So just to repeat it, Tradition 8 is Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may, may employ special workers. And um, I feel like some of the most important points that I would want to make about this tradition are summed up in the last paragraph about it in the 12 and 12. So I'm just going to read that right quick. It says, in a way, we learn to give our loving support to others freely without trying to advise people or change them, nor do we look to others to work our program for us. In keeping with our non-professional status in a way, we are willing to share and listen to our fellow compulsive eaters but we try to leave behind expectations that they should solve our problems for us, that we should solve theirs, or that others will repay us in some way for helping them. Service is its own reward. When we approach others in this way, we often find that they respond to us with a new depth of love and trust. So um, <clears throat> the, um, let's see, shoot. I got a little bit, there we go. Okay, I made notes because whenever I was sharing a tradition, I have to make a few notes for myself. Um, with tradition eight, some of the con very concrete things it means are that we never pay anybody to be a sponsor because our sponsors aren't therapists basically is what it means. And so there's no exchange of money in our program when it comes to giving um, support to our fellows. And, but there's the caveat that you know, very large intergroups and world service may have to hire special workers to run kind of the business end of OA, like keep the website running, that kind of thing. Um, so with the traditions, one of the things that has um, made them really valuable to me is, is taking them out of the realm of it just applies to OA as an organization and looking at how it applies to my personal life. And um, the, and to me, it relates to my 12-step service work. And the service work I do is related to my working of step 12. And because it's one of the steps, it's what keeps me in recovery. And the thing about, if I think about what does it mean to me that my 12-step service is non-professional, I'm not being paid for it, is it, it makes me think about having humility <clears throat> as a sponsor. So, you know, I, I'm really grateful that I came into Overeaters Anonymous and not any of the kind of more fanatical, stricter 12-step programs that have to do with food, because the things I've heard about the way sponsoring works in some of those programs are kind of horrifying to me. You know, the idea that a sponsor would tell me what I have to eat or tell me that I have to do anything, like had that been what was going on in a way, I never, I couldn't have stuck with this program. So what humility as a sponsor means to me is that when I'm sponsoring, 
I'm just a tool of the program when it comes to the, the, the sponsee, that I'm just their tool. I'm not their higher power, that um, at best, I'm just a tool that maybe helps them connect to their own higher power, but I'm not it. Um, and, and I just want to point out there that sponsors are not even mentioned in the 12 steps and the 12 steps are the, you know, the core of the, what is our recovery program. So, you know, sponsors are this extra thing. They're not part of the 12 steps. They're very valuable for working them, but, but they're just a tool. Um, that another aspect of humility as a sponsor is that, um, I'm sponsoring so as a way of working my own step 12. So that's my payback is, you know, if I'm working with another person, it, it's not imperative that that other person get better. What's imperative is that I work step 12 so that I can stay in recovery, um, which sounds very selfish, but it's, it's just the way it works. Um, and some other, and another really important aspect of humility as a sponsor is that I, I never, ever get to tell a sponsee what to do, that at bet all I can do is share what has worked for me. This is my experience. This is what helped me. This is what didn't help me. And then that said, it is okay as a sponsor to set boundaries. I had one sponsor um, really emphasize to me one time at, over a course of years that the sponsoring relationship is a place where we as sponsors and sponsees get to practice some of some of the aspects of relationships. Thank you. That, um, that we didn't necessarily get to practice growing up. And so, um, it, it is, you know, if I need to set a boundary, for example, if a sponsee routinely misses the call with me, I could set a boundary and say, I need you to keep our appointments, you know, and then if the person kept not setting the appointments, I could say, if you don't keep setting the, keep, you know, keep our appointments, then I need to end this relationship or whatever. It's a place to practice boundary setting. So um, that's really all I have to say about tradition eight. So I guess I'll just segue into um, a little bit about my story. And I've told my story here before a couple of times, so I don't want to, you know, kind of beat a dead horse, so to speak. So I'll just give some of the highlights of the of my story and then talk about what really works for me and what, what I'm focusing on right now. Um, I um, was very much a, a normal eater as a young child. I was a normal weight kid, normal eater, no, you know, normal, <laughs> but I was born into a family. Uh, my parents were both adult children of alcoholics and there was a lot of yelling between the two of them, a lot of yelling at me a lot of uh, spanking, a lot of rigid rule setting. And um, the way I responded to that environment was that I started making rules for myself and I started beating myself up because my thinking was if I could beat myself up first, maybe they wouldn't, you know, spank me. It didn't really work very well, but that was my method. And um, so I was going along, you know, by, by about the age of nine, I had really developed a very powerful kind of abusive inner voice and perfectionism. And then when I hit puberty, my body was developing normally, which means for girls that curves appear, weight is put on. That's a very normal part of puberty for girls. But my family responded to me by, by giving me all sorts of messages that I was gaining weight inappropriately. Um, and, and so I believed them. And so that became yet another thing <laughs> that I beat myself up for. And eventually I went on one diet with my mom 
I don't even know how much weight I lost, maybe five pounds, you know, and that one diet was enough to break that natural mechanism that I was born with, um, um, you know, that enabled me to eat when I was hungry and stop when I was full. And, um, and I began binging and I, and it, and it became a cycle for me where I would constantly go on diets and then I'd fall off the diets and binge and binge for some period of time and then diet again. And those, the periods that cycle got faster and faster and faster. And until by the end, the cycle was, um, eat as little as possible all day long and start binging at 10 PM and binge, you know, wipe out the kitchen of food until, I had to fall asleep at two or 3 AM, get up at six to go to school, eat as little as possible, binge all night. I mean, it was horrible. At one point, my dad put a lock on the cereal cabinet because um, with a key, you know, because they couldn't keep cereal in the house because I was binging on it all the time. And my weight just went up and up and up and up and up. And um, so that by the time I was a senior in high school, the summer before my senior year, I, um, I want to just sidetrack one other major symptom of the disease, because I think it's very important, was that I really bought into the societal belief, our society's diet culture, you know, and I would cut out magazines of models from, uh, cut out pictures of models and magazines and hang them on the wall, you know, and, and, and stare at them and eat as little as I could all day and then go right to binging at night. And um, it was a horrible way to live. And so by the summer before my senior year, I was having suicidal thoughts. And, um, luckily my, my, when I told my dad, he got me into therapy. It was a terrible therapist, but, but, um, one thing she did do was suggest OA. And, um, I will say, I, I really believe it saved my life. I think I was so depressed and, and this cycle was so bad that I just think I would have tried suicide. And so, so I just, you know, I'm here because of this program. It's, digressing back to the non-professional thing. It's one of the reasons why when I'm asked to speak, I say yes, because I have to try to give back what was so generously given to me. Um, when I came to meetings, uh, you know, um, I was a 17 year old when I started coming and it, 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 and I, you know, it was all these middle-aged women were the only people in the program when I first started. And I, I felt kind of a little out of place because of the age difference, but I just, these people were talking my language. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, they were reading the AA 12 and 12 because we didn't have our own books at that point. And I, I just, I, I related like here, were, here are the first people who were not just pointing a finger at me and telling me I needed to lose weight, but instead we're talking very honestly about um, eating you know, embarrassing quantities of food and not being able to stop. And I just felt so at home. And that's one of the things I really treasure about OA meetings is when people are really honest about what's going on with them. Um, it, it just, it touches my heart and it's, and it's one of the reasons why I love this program. Um, anyway, I'll just flash forward and say, OA really worked for me. I did, I I dived in, I dove in, I clung on to the program like a drowning man sees as a life preserver, as it says in the AA literature. And just a nice woman came up to me and offered to be my sponsor. And I took her up on it and, you know, worked the steps with her, went to lots of meetings. When I went to college and went to meetings on campus, I found meetings where there were people my age, which was cool. Um, and I, in that first year of going to college, went through a major relapse where I regained 
back all the weight I'd lost and way more. Um, and, and reached what I, you know, reached, reach a, reach a very uncomfortable weight for me, but I just kept go- going to meetings all through that. And eventually, um, I began taking the action of buying clothes that fit me, even at that very large size. And, you know, here I was, I kept going to meetings, kept working the steps. I was buying clothes from my body that actually fit me at that size. And then one day dressed up in that, you know, in one of these outfits I had bought for myself, heading out my uh, college co-op dorm situation to go to work. I, and I think I might've even binged the night before I felt like I, I heard a voice that said, Melissa, no matter how big you get, I'm going to clothe you. And that was, a, that was my spiritual awakening. I feel like that was my burning bush experience. And it was just a voice inside my head. It might've been me. I don't, you know, I don't really ascri- ascribe to the God idea. I, I just try to work on having some kind of humility to believe that there is power in this world. That's bigger than me. You know, I can't cause the tides. I can't make a voice pop into my head that says, Melissa, no matter how big you get, I'm going to clothe you. But that, that was a turning point for me that no matter what, what's most important for my recovery is that I work on accepting myself exactly as I am. Um, taking care of myself exactly as I can am. I'll keep working these steps. I hope they work, but the bottom line is I've got to love myself exactly as I am. And that, and, and it, it wasn't like I was instantly abstinent or instantly stopped all eating disordered behaviors, but I got back on the road to recovery and, you know, gradually my weight became normal again and, um, had many years of recovery after that. And, um, and then just continuing to flash forward because it's that, you know, I came to program in 1986 and I just turned 53, as I told people before the meeting started. So I've had a lot of years in program. And after about 10 years, I, um, um, I left program. Um, I had begun reading outside literature because I never could, I never could stick to an abstinence that was of the nature of, I don't eat X or I do exactly this with my food. I never could like any definition I could come up with at some point I would break it. And then I'd feel like a failure. And then that might lead to binging. And then I might, you know, and, and then I'd have to, it'd take me a while to get back on track again. And so I started reading outside literature that was promoting more of um, a sense of tuning into one's internal body signals to figure out what and how much to eat. And I just couldn't tolerate the dissonance between going to meetings where people were beating themselves up because they had eaten X, whatever their X was. And this way I was trying to go of not having any rules about X, Y, or Z food, trying to turn you know, trying to tune into my internal signals. So I I finally left program and I was gone for about 10 years. And I will say, it's not like I left the principles of program behind. I still tried to have a higher power still, you know, um, still tried to do personal inventory. I still lived by the principles of the program, but I did not participate in OA. And, um, And so life did not fall apart for me. (laughs) You know, it's not like I, it's not like I went back to the way it was before, but what brought me back to OA about 14 years ago was that my second child had been born and I had noticed over the 
preceding year or two that I would just keep looking up the, the, the OA um, schedule. You know, I just kept once in a while, I would look up the schedule and see where, you know, is there a meeting that would work for me? And um, after my, my first child was born, I had um, experienced postpartum depression, got on medication for it. Um, and I was doing a, like a little postpartum group support thing for moms, you know, new mothers who are experiencing depression. And I, I liked it, but I kept being aware of the fact that, you know, I can't be postpartum forever. <laughs> and, um, and I kind of like this support group setting and I haven't had a support group in a long time. And I don't want to have to pay for, this was a free group I happened to go to, but I was keenly aware having done a lot of therapy in my life that if I wanted to keep having a group, I'd have to pay for it. And, um, and so I kept thinking, oh, you know, if I went back to OA, I could have group support and I wouldn't even have to be postpartum anymore. It would just be group support. And um, that, and, you know, from time to time, I would have some kind of episode with food that maybe wasn't as bad as a binge in the old days, but it was distressing. So I kept looking at the schedule and eventually I found one meeting in the schedule that worked um, with my, you know, mother of an infant and working two jobs <laughs> schedule. And I went back to that meeting and again, I had that experience of, I am really at home. And also in the 10 years I'd been gone and I had moved from the peninsula to San Francisco, you know, and maybe I had changed. So I had changed places, time had passed and program had changed and I had changed. I found that there was, there were a lot more people talking about being anorexic, bulimic, compulsive exercisers, as well as garden variety, compulsive overeaters. And, and I just felt even more at home when that was the case, because, you know, there's a way in which I'm just a garden variety compulsive overeater. But the thing was my eating disorder started with self-hatred. Then it progressed to a diet, which taken to as it's, it's taken to its extreme is anorexia. I always felt like I was basically just a fail anorexic. And my, my whole, you know, my whole cycle was anorexic during the day, bulimic at night, but don't actually, you know, don't actually throw up. And in, 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 and at the worst of my eating disorder, I would also engage in purging behaviors. I, I attempted the throwing up, couldn't make my body do it. So I would, I would compulsively exercise or do kind of crazy exercise things like go out for a super long walk in 40 degree weather with no coat on, because that will make me burn more calories. Like if that's not purge behavior, I don't know what is. So I, I had, I really felt like, even though the biggest manifestation of my disease was compulsive overeating and weight gain eventually that I actually, I really identified with anorexics and I really identified with bulimics. And so I, I, I love that OA has grown to encompass a wider range of eating disorders. Cause I feel more comfortable in that environment. Um, let's see, I digress anyway. So I came back to program about 14 years ago. And the thing is, you know, working program now looks very different than working program when I was recently graduated from high school and then an unmarried college student. You know, in those days, I went to meetings every single day. Um, you know, I did service at the intergroup and world service level. I, I, you know, I, I like could really spend huge amounts of time doing program as well as like my own personal step writing and step work, and that kind of thing. And then as a mom of two kids and working two jobs and, you know, just coming back to program in my forties, I guess it was forties. I might've been 39. Anyway, um, 
you know, it was one meeting a week and it was, um, it still was step writing on my own, but it wasn't necessarily an hour a day of reading literature and writing steps, but it was steady step work. And so when I look at, you know, what has really worked for me in both times in program, the fundamental thing has been working the steps that, you know, I can't overstate the value of meetings. They are very powerful. And giving service is very helpful because it's one of the steps. So <laughs> that's probably why it's so powerful. But but actually working through the steps, one through 12, doing the written inventory, sharing the written inventory, looking at my character defects, praying to have them removed, looking at the list of people I owe amends to, whether they, those amends are apologies or some kind of change I need to make in the way I'm relating to that person. That's time, Melissa. Thank you. I'll wrap up. It's been working the steps. It's never been, you know, screwing down onto um, my food plan tighter. It's always been working the steps. And when I work the steps, the symptoms of my eating disorder have melted away. So thank you so much for letting me share today. And um, I look forward to hearing what you all have to say.